Welcome to the Kyperion Commentary Podcast, where each week we have a discussion with a Kyperion contributor or guest about a published article or a current event. This is episode 34, Last Call for Liberty, a conversation with Oscanis. Hello, I'm Dustin Messer, Senior Fellow with the Center for Cultural Leadership and your host for today's episode. Today I'll be talking with sociologist, apologist, and author Osgenis. If ever there were a person deserving the title public intellectual, it's Oz Guinness. For the past 40 years, Oz has been a leading light on issues surrounding faith in the public square, apologetics, and religious freedom. Oz has a new book out next, out next month for my VP. It just might be his most important yet. It's called Last Call for Liberty, and he's here to chat with me about it. Oz, thanks for talking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, as I'm betting most people listening to us uh, are familiar with your work, but even if they're not, they recognize from your accent uh, that you ain't from around these parts. And uh, in the book, you write about uh, writing from the perspective of a resident alien. Uh, let me ask you, as someone who's born in China and educated at Oxford, when did you first become interested in America, not only as sort of a geographic place, but as an idea? I, I grew up in China, and I had many American friends in school. Well, I began to grapple with America more seriously in the 60s, and then I came over here for the first time in 1968, 50 years ago this year, which was an extraordinary year. And following that, I was a reporter for a BBC documentary on the role of religion in Reagan's election, which is the beginning of the Christian right. And I wrote The American Hour after that, and then in 1984... Uh, my wife and I, my wife is American, and my son is half and half. Uh, we moved here to Washington, D.C., and I've been here in D.C. ever since. So I've tried to follow America. I'm an admirer of this country, but deeply, deeply troubled as to where things are now. They put it like this. Everyone yeah. realizes America's in crisis, the deepest divisions since just before the Civil War. But the question is, what are they? It's not mm. just Republicans and Democrats or yeah, yeah. so-called coastals and heartlanders, or the new term is now nationalists against the globalists. But I would argue the deepest divisions are over freedom and over the American experiment, because one side goes back to 1776 and the American Revolution, which was largely, not completely, sadly, biblical, and the other side, actually, without often knowing it, goes back to 1789 and the French Revolution and the ideas that have flowed from that, including Nietzsche and Foucault and people today. So I'm not on the side of Locke yeah. or the Scottish Enlightenment. No, actually, American constitutionalism comes from the covenant. And it was a gift to the Reformation and the Reformation's rediscovery of the book of Exodus. That's a very different thing. Sure, yeah. So, but in the book, you sort of frame it as two different visions of freedom, and maybe that's the issue, uh, rather than liberty. One being classical liberalism, and the other being more of sort of a progressive mentality of freedom. Uh, you write about that quite a bit. Could you just tell us a little bit about what those two competing visions of freedom are? Maybe one more rooted in covenant, uh, and what's at stake as you write in the book, uh, as America decides between these two different visions of freedom? Well, they're extraordinarily different all the way down the line. I mean, one begins originally in the Scriptures, the Book of Exodus and the whole Torah, through the Reformation. The other goes back to the Enlightenment. 
And so the thinkers are quite different. One comes from the Lord through Moses, the other comes from Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Marquis de Sade, people like that. And they come out differently all the way down the line. Essentially, as Lord Acton put it, the Reformation freedom, the early American freedom, is the power to do what you ought, obedience to the unenforceable. Whereas the French Revolution-type freedom is freedom to do what you like, which is much closer to the libertarianism of today. So what the book is, it's a series of ten questions that form a checklist and my challenge is that in this crisis in this country, Americans need to ask themselves, where do you come out on each of these ten questions? Because that will shape the direction the country's going to go in. Hmm. And uh, you talk about the direction the country's going to go in, and certainly trajectory is important. But I wonder if you just do sort of an analysis of the state of America today. Uh, obviously, we just came through a really turbulent election, and as we watch Supreme Court hearings that seem quite raucous, uh, what's the state of freedom in America, and how will that affect uh, the rest of the world? Well, I argue pretty early on in the book, actually in the first chapter, that it's a great mistake to become obsessed with Trump. You have never-Trumpers and pro-Trumpers, and that's all they talk about and all they can see. But I would argue that Trump is the consequence of the real crisis, not the cause. And so what he represents is the gigantic wrecking ball that stopped America in its tracks. If you'd had eight years of Hillary, following eight years of Obama, America would have been set in its tracks in concrete, going the wrong way. Now, Trump's not going to turn things around. He talks of making America great again, but he never asked what made it great in the first place. But he does offer, and his administration does, four years for a rethink. And the question is, will Americans use that time to rethink, looking at the real crisis, or will they just continue to be obsessed with pro and con Trump? And that's the danger where we are at the moment. I have never, I lived here in Washington for 30 years. I have never seen it so divided, so embittered, so polarized, so literally hate-filled at various moments. And that's extremely dangerous. Above all, people are missing the point. Hmm. As you write in the book, uh, people are missing the point, and you say that, uh, in a sense, America is asleep. Um, and obviously, language of waking up, awakening, is deep in our bones with uh, the first and second great awakening. I wonder, just as you look at the, the state of American freedom and just the, the republic generally, what will wake us up, and what's the consequence of America staying asleep? Well, we're in a such a state that I actually believe that only the Lord can wake America up hmm. by speaking powerfully. But on a human level, I mentioned the 1850s and 60s. The difference then was that Abraham Lincoln, who stepped forward, addressed what he called the better angels of the American experiments. In other words, there was an evil and a hypocrisy at the heart of America in the Constitution, the three-fifths laws and so on. But he addressed the better angels through the Declaration. You look at his, he came to Washington from Springfield through Philadelphia, gave a great speech at the Independence Hall, said all his ideas came from the two documents that came out of that building. Hmm. And then he finished by quoting Psalm 137 and said, may his tongue cleave to the roof of his mouth if he was unfaithful to those ideas. 
Now, the difference today is from where it's deeply divided now, as almost there were then, there's no Lincoln. Nobody addresses the better angels of the American experiment. Mm. And that is, my wife and I pray for that daily, that the Lord would raise up leaders who can do that. Now, there are some. I mean, in the Kavanaugh hearings last week, Senator Ben Sass gave a magnificent 15 minutes of a civics lesson, you know, on the difference between the Congress and the uh, Supreme Court. It was magnificent, Mm. independent, courageous, visionary. I would hope that he could do something like that, or someone else. I'm not sure who it is. I pray that God would raise up such a leader. But we've got to have, those of us who are followers of Jesus, the courage to break with much of the cultural warring, as the word is now, and really articulate a better way. But we've got to understand the crisis and then understand how to argue for a genuine freedom, genuine justice. For example, in this area, I'm making an overgeneralization. Say the word justice, and Christians will scream that way. But a lot of the so-called social justice warriors are following views of justice that are closer to the French Revolution Hmm. than the biblical revolution, and they won't come out well. And they're actually making the problems worse. You look at the difference between, say, Martin Luther King, who was the last great racial activist who spoke from a strongly biblical position. Compare him with Stokely Carmichael or the Black Lives Matter, and you can see they're entirely different universes. And if you choose whichever you choose, they go in two different directions. Hmm. Uh, Well, I want to ask you, just as you talk about um, Abraham Lincoln's use of scripture and so forth, uh, one of the things that struck me in your book was you said it's not, uh, if not wrongheaded, perhaps just insufficient to spend a lot of our energy trying to argue one way or another whether or not America is a, a Christian nation. You say that's a, an insufficient qu- question to ask. So what is the right question to ask, if not, is America a Christian country? Well, you know, that the way that's often put is inflammatory. There's mm. no question that most of the early Americans were Christians, mm. and the ideas that made America were profoundly Christian in the sense they were biblical. They were Jewish and Christian, no question. As I said earlier, constitution comes from covenant. Hmm. But that said, the distinctive thing about the First Amendment, America has never been formally, officially, nationally Christian. And that's a mistake. And when the Christian right sort of claims that it was, it sends shivers down the back of, say, the small communities like the Jews. And it's just yeah. an unwise way of putting it. So we should be fighting for the ideas. They're incredibly important and essential today. But very, very careful in the language we're using to make sure that it's not unnecessarily inflammatory. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, let me ask you just about the the role of a Christian arguing for liberty or freedom generally. Uh, the Catholic theologian William Cavanaugh makes the point that sometimes when we use the terminology religious freedom, it can be counterproductive if we sort of make religion a silo, you know, that we're defending what you do on a Sunday morning as if it's just one sort of religious part of life. And one of the things I appreciated about your book is you're arguing for a really robust uh, view of freedom, not just for Christians or not just for what we do on Sunday, um, but freedom sort of for its own sake under God. Uh, I wonder if you'd just say something about being a Christian and being concerned with freedom generally, not just what we might think of 
as religious freedom? Well, I make a difference between freedom and religious freedom, although they're obviously closely linked. In terms of freedom, I think our understanding is Jewish and Christian is profoundly biblical. And the biblical view of freedom is the highest humanism, in other words, the highest view of humanity, but at the same time the most balanced and realistic. Humans are free to do good or to do ill. And we should go back to the views of freedom throughout the scripture, and we should today be the champions and the guardians of the highest view of freedom there is. Hmm. And a lot of Christians, for example, the Old Testament people say to me, God isn't interested in freedom. He's sovereign. And I say to them, for heaven's sake, what on earth does sovereignty mean? It's a power that is free, and God can exert his will despite all resistance. That's the definition of freedom, or one of them. So we should rediscover freedom. Now, religious freedom, you also referred to, you know, it goes back to Tertullian, the first man to use that word in the second century. And then Lactantius, who was the tutor of the governor, uh, the emperor, Constantine. So it is an early Christian precious notion. God asks for free worship and free obedience, and so you grant respect religious freedom. Now, sadly, the Catholic centuries squelch that, and I wish our Catholic friends were more honest about their bad contribution. Hmm. But that said, the Reformation rediscovered religious freedom. But you have thinkers like Thomas Howells or, say, Roger Williams, supremely because of his influence on America, it was religious freedom for everybody. And Williams argues against Locke, and so do I, and against Milton, because each of them limited freedom. They didn't include atheists, or they didn't include Catholics, whereas uh, Roger Williams said everyone. Protestants, Catholics, what he called infidels, atheists, and what he called Mohammedans, the Muslims. And that was radical, and it's considered ridiculous. Now, when I got involved with the Williamsburg Charter in the mid-1980s, I got death threats from Colorado hmm. um, because the Charter stood for religious freedom, say, for Muslims. And it was the religious right which knocked us out in many ways. And Christians have made a great mistake in not standing for the common good hmm. and appearing in public to be just fighting for us. And now, of course, the left is saying that religious freedom has been weaponized because we're using it to press our interests and our agendas against, say, the gays. That, that's rubbish. Religious freedom is for everybody without exception. And we, as followers of Jesus, should be standing for the religious freedom for everybody. Very helpful. Uh, given your background in religious sociology and, of course, the fact that we're talking on September 11th, uh, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, in relation to the book's sort of argument on freedom and its, uh, its future. How did September 11th, 2001, affect the state of religious freedom, broadly speaking? In other words, how are we thinking about it differently because of what happened on 9-11? Uh, and how is the world different today than it was then? Well, two types of responses. I mean, t take religious freedom in the way people are saying it's been weaponized. One of the reasons was 9-11. And you can directly trace, say, the freedom from religion as opposed to be freedom for religion uh, to 9-11. And you have thinkers like Richard Dawkins who openly says 
when he saw what happened on 9-11, he saw the absolute danger of any and all religions in the modern world. So 9-11 was extraordinarily important in stiffening the back of those who want freedom from all religion, not freedom of religion for all. So that's one, one part of the, the answer to your question. The other part is we've got to explore as followers of Jesus the link between religion and violence. And as the Jews point out a long time ago, the very first violence, which is Cain's murder of his brother Abel, is in the context of worship. In other words, there's an extraordinary link right at the heart of the Bible in the early chapters of Genesis between religion and violence. In other words, violence is sometimes those who reject God altogether, but it's sometimes those who rationalize what they're doing in the name of God. And so we've got to be very, very careful about the relationship between religion and violence. And we who are Christians have to think that through you know, very, very carefully and be realistic and make sure. You, know, you can see, for instance, I, I mentioned uh, the challenge of slavery earlier. You look at someone like Booker T. Washington, born a slave, liberated by Lincoln. But he makes the great point there was no hatred in his heart and he had no prejudice towards whites or even his former slavers because God had removed it. Now you can see with, say, some of the Black Lives Matter types or the Stokely Carmichael types, they are playing on hatred, using hatred to combat hatred. The problem is they will never overcome it. They'll dig the problem deeper. So we need as Christians to understand the depth of the problem and the biblical ways of righting wrongs. Because again, the two revolutions, the American and the French, have entirely different ways of seeing wrong and righting wrong. Hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Guinness, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, I'll leave this with one last question, and hopefully it's open-ended enough that it'll give you an opportunity to say uh, anything you, you would like to share with uh, our listeners in, in regards to the book. And the question is this. Uh, the book is largely a warning. Um, it's heartening, it's challenging, and yet you write as one with great hope. I wonder if you just say a few words about what gives you hope and why you think this book is uh, important, not just sort of as a general argument, but important to America today. Well, as I said, it's a checklist, and citizens are going to come out really rethink through what is America, where do they want to see it going, because if that's not done, America's going to go the wrong way, as it's increasingly going now. And I argue that from 1968 onwards, most of the world of the universities, the press and media, and the world of entertainment has gone the wrong way. And since they're the ideas people, that's extremely dangerous to the country, and we are now approaching the Rubicon moment. But I'm not a pessimist. Just take two reasons. First, the Lord is able to turn things around. The sexual revolution, for example, looks unstoppable, invincible. But if you look into history, it's been stopped twice, and once in a good way, which was England in the 18th century, through the Wesleyan revival and the leadership of Wilberforce and others. And there's no question that America could still be turned around, but it will take leadership, and it will take people who understand the direction and the things that America should go back to in a good way. At a far deeper level, I don't think Christians should ever be despairing. And the way I put that is, 
the end is not the end. In other words, in the Bible, you see two types of end. One is the end as ending. In other words, like the Latin word finis, conclusion, ending, and so on, full stop. That always happens in a fallen world. We're born, we grow, we decline, we die. The seasons change. Summer ends. We're going into the fall. We're never surprised by endings of that sort. But they are not the end, because the other meaning of end is end in the Greek word telos. End as goal, objective, purpose, culmination, unveiling of meaning, and so on. And obviously, you take, say, I mentioned Augustine earlier, you, or rather you did, resident alien. You know, Rome fell, but Augustine's great book, The City of Man Fell, The City of God, went on. And he laid that vision down, which helped the church go through what became the Dark Ages. It may be, as some say, we're on the verge of a new Dark Age, but we should not be despairing even if that happens, because the end is not the end. And whether some things end, the decline of the West, maybe one day the fall of the American Republic... But that will not be the ending of the kingdom. And we go on with hope, regardless. We've been talking with Oz Ennis. His book is called Last Call for Liberty. It's out in a few weeks. Oz, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. No, great privilege. Thank you.